I'm Paul Johnson and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. And this week we're going to be looking at uh, an issue of great importance to all of us, which is what's happening to our incomes. Uh, What's been happening to our incomes over the last decade, uh, what's happening to them today as we're going through this COVID crisis and what might happen to them over the next few years. And to talk about that, I'm joined by two of my expert colleagues at the IFS, Agnes Norris-Keeler and Robert Joyce. Before we come on to the present day, Agnes, perhaps we could start just by going through, broadly speaking, what's happened to average incomes over the last decade in the run-up to this crisis. And perhaps you could say a bit about how unusual that's been. Yes, well, unfortunately, if um, we first look at household incomes, as you said, the 10 years up to 2018 had really been the worst decade in terms of average income growth since records began in the 1960s. And that dismal result is really the combined effect of three distinct periods. So between 2007 and 2011, the negative impacts of the financial crisis caused incomes to fall. They then recovered moderately at first and then more strongly up until 2016. But after that, in the most recent years of data, we see that the Brexit referendum caused quite a large spike in inflation, which caused real income growth to really dry up. And so if you put those three periods together, the result is that average income in 2018 was basically the same as it had been three years earlier in 2016. So that's really not a great result. And it looks even worse if you compare that to what we might have expected had historical trends uh, continued. So trends that we'd seen in, say, the 40 years prior to the Great Recession, if that had continued over the last 10 years, then incomes in 2018 would have been 16% higher than they actually turned out to be. So our hourly earnings growth has been uh, even worse than um, income growth over the last decade. And indeed, um, we've had really no growth in earnings over that period. And that's had one consequence, hasn't it, which is that the incomes of those above and below pension age have uh, taken rather a different uh, pattern. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about the extent to which we've seen something different happening to pensioners to what we've seen happening to uh, younger people? Yes, that's correct. So if you look at the last 10 years and how uh, people above and below pension age have fared differently, you see that the older age group has really done much better than people below pension age over that entire 10-year period. And that's essentially because once you reach pension age, the vast majority of people stop working. So their incomes aren't dragged down to the same extent by the real, the really dismal earnings growth that we've seen in the years following the financial crisis. I think it is important to point out, though, that if you look at the sort of uh, more recent years, so the period after 2016, there we see that really income growth among both old and young alike has been really quite dismal. And that poor performance among uh, the younger groups since 2016 uh, has not just been driven by poor earnings growth, has it? I mean, what's been happening to what's been happening to social security payments or welfare payments since then? 
Yeah, if you look sort of beyond the average and perhaps you look more at the lower end of the income distribution where people get more of their income from benefits and tax credits, you see that recent years have been even worse for those lower income households. And that's essentially due to the fact that we've seen reductions in the generosity of benefits over that period. In particular, again, due to this higher rate of inflation, because over that period, many working age benefits and tax credits has, have been frozen in cash terms due to the uh, policy dubbed benefits freeze. And that meant that when we saw higher rates of inflation over those years, um, that really dragged down the real value of those benefits. So the amount that a given amount of benefit income could purchase. And that's had a knock on negative effect, particularly uh, towards the bottom end of the income distribution. So the last three or four years have seen the people right at the bottom of the income distribution being doing particularly badly because of cuts to welfare benefits. But if you look over the decade as a whole, um, can we say that this has been a decade of increasing inequality? Well, this might come as a surprise to some people. But actually, if you look at measures of income inequality, they're still lower today than they were in uh in, in the years immediately before the financial crisis, so sort of around the levels in 2007. And that's because in the years immediately after the financial crisis, we saw very large falls in inequality because reductions in earnings hit the incomes of higher income households um, to a larger extent than those at the bottom of the income distribution, whereas among those at the bottom of the income distribution who receive more of their income through benefits, that sort of uh, the safety net provided by the social security system sort of insured them from the types of falls that we saw among higher income households. So in sum, we've, uh, we're entering this crisis in a period after dreadful uh, lack of increase in household incomes for a decade or more, very poor earnings growth a period of cuts in welfare benefits, which over the last four or five years at least have hit people at the bottom. Uh, And uh, whilst um, we haven't had uh, an increase in inequality over the last decade, uh, we still, uh, I think, have uh, inequality which is high by recent historic standards. So that's the the rather unhappy position we were in back in February, really. But but Rob, perhaps you could uh, start to say something about what we know so far about what's happened to people's incomes in the period since the uh, COVID hit? Yeah, well, let's start with the the, the first round economic effects, if you like, the impacts on jobs and and, and, and earnings. Um, So as has now been quite well documented, uh, a rather uh, cruel twist of fate in this crisis really is that the sectors that have been most acutely impacted in a direct way by the economic response, by the public health response to the crisis, have been low-paying sectors. Um, think of things like hospitality, uh, non-food retail, uh, which have uh, had to shut down completely and, and indeed remain shut down for a, a few more days uh, to come. Um, these are low-paying sectors. And so It seemed clear from the start that the low paid were were most likely to be immediately hit in terms of their earnings and employment prospects. Uh, The youngest workers as well, much, much more likely to work in those sectors. Um, And as 
data as actual data has started to come through from uh, one or two surveys that have been conducted post-crisis, uh, data from the furloughing scheme that tells us a little bit about about who's being furloughed. We, we, do, we do see those patterns. We see that the average furloughed worker, for example, is really on very, very low earnings. Um, and, and we do see that uh, young people are amongst those most likely to be impacted. So that's when thinking about the impacts on jobs and earnings, those are some of the, the key um, patterns. Um, now, when we're thinking about incomes as a whole, of course, um, the story can be a little bit different, in particular uh, towards the bottom, because um, uh, the benefit system is there to provide uh, income protection to some degree. Um, and for those who weren't earning that much in the first place, the amount of income protection that it can provide, the proportion of lost earnings that it can replace can be quite large. So I think it is important to separate that, the, the, the first round effects on jobs and earnings, and then the impacts on total incomes. And we've just started actually to look at that second aspect as well. Uh, we've now got a little bit of data on this, both from a, a household survey that's been conducted post-crisis and also from um, some work that we've been doing using um, bank account data as well, which tells us in, in almost real time what's happening to people's uh, incomes. And there you do see a different picture. If you look, uh, if you rank people according to their pre-crisis income, you do see that if you're just looking at their earnings, they have fallen most towards the bottom because of the patterns that I just, the kinds of patterns that I just described. But if you look at what's happened to their total incomes, um, they have changed in a much more similar way um, for the different groups uh, ranked by their pre-crisis income. And that is to a large degree because uh, the benefit system has, uh, to a significant degree, sort of papered over the cracks, if you like. It has provided quite a bit of uh, income protection for those towards the bottom. So in the short term, uh, that's, been, you know, that, that's a very important thing to, to realise when we're thinking about the impacts on, on, on income inequality as opposed to earnings inequality. So we've had a period uh, since the beginning of this crisis in which uh, the large majority of those who have been furloughed have been relatively low earners. Uh, but of course, they've had a large part of their income replaced by the furlough scheme or even by uh, the benefit system. What, what, what are your fears for what might happen as the furlough scheme is withdrawn and uh, the government stops paying all of the earnings of uh, pretty much a third of private sector workers? Well, the immediate risk clearly is, is a lot more unemployment. Um, that's what the furlough scheme was designed to prevent. And at, at the moment, for a firm, there's, there's no cost to keeping people on their books. So even if they see very little productive work for them to do, uh, even for the foreseeable future, um, there are probably quite a few firms who are keeping people on furlough. And as soon as they start having to make any kind of contribution towards the cost of that, which they will start having to do uh, in little more than a month from now, uh, well, then the risk is that many of them will choose not to do that. And then we will see the kind of spike in unemployment that we've been trying to prevent or delay. And so uh, at that point, uh, of course, a lot will depend on how effectively we are able to find other openings for those people, which will depend, of course, on how the economy as a whole is doing, uh, whether other sectors are bouncing back uh, or not. Um, and all kinds of, of, of other things, some of which perhaps government policy can, can help with. But yeah, that, that's the key risk, clearly, is that shortly we see a lot of people, a lot of essentially hidden unemployment 
which, which is what we currently have um, in some cases um, when we're thinking about furloughed workers becoming actual unemployment. And how much evidence is there, even right now, that there's been an increase in financial problems and financial distress for people who have been furloughed or have lost their jobs? Well, there's a fair bit of evidence for that. Um, if we, thinking back to the, the work I just mentioned um, that we've done using bank account data, and one of the things we're able to look at there is whether there's evidence of people missing bill payments that they, that they normally make, whether that be for mortgages or for rents or for council tax uh, or for utility bills. And we see evidence from April onwards that quite a lot more people are um, not paying those bills. Um, something like, depending on which bill we're talking about, something like um, 10% fewer bills being paid in April uh, and May than we would have predicted before the crisis. Um, and actually, somewhat worryingly, thing, it seems that that was deteriorating further between April and May. So there was this huge initial economic shock after we had the lockdown lots of people saw reductions in their in their in their income that led to financial distress but you roll another month to may and it looks like um, as incomes hadn't recovered the signs of financial distress had increased further so suggesting that people perhaps the, you know, the longer this goes on as you might expect are increasingly struggling to to make ends meet and that's really quite worrying in the context of this this being the period when the government is providing the most support and the period probably before the biggest spike uh, in um, in unemployment. Does all this lead you to to worry uh, that we may actually see not just uh, an increase uh, increase in number of people on very low incomes, but actually a big increase in inequality over the next couple of years at least? I think there are certainly risks to economic inequality here. Um, It may well be that they are um, somewhat longer term than just the next few months or even the next year or so, partly because, as I mentioned, you know, in the short term, actually, the social security system can do quite a lot to paper over the cracks. And it has been doing that so far. Um, So, you know, these low earners have had their careers disrupted to a greater degree than higher earners here. But say, at least in the short term, other sources of income from the state in particular can help to plug that gap quite a lot. I think that the um, uh, two points, A, nevertheless, the kinds of um, economic shocks uh, that those people are experiencing may, may increase further yet, as we've just discussed, because, for example, as the furlough scheme is wound down, we may see even more people losing their jobs. Um, B, the long-term effects of this disruption um, on those people um, are still something that we should very much worry about. You know, we know that periods out of work can harm your career. We know, particularly for young people, that disrupting that process that they often go through at the start of their careers of moving from employer to employer and from occupation to occupation, finding the right match for them, climbing the job ladder. If you disrupt that process, that can have long-lasting effects um, on them um, further further down the line. Um, so, uh, so that's still a reason to worry about their, their future economic prospects. And that is something that, that seems to be impacting those, as I said, on lower earnings than, than those further up who are less likely to be suffering the same kind of disruption. In addition, um, I think we should think about what's happening here to household balance sheets as well through the crisis. Um, there is, you know, there, there is a kind of cost that a lot of actually higher income households 
in some sense, are, are disproportionately paying right now, which is that a lot of the recreational activity that they usually spend much of their money on, um, one of the ways, frankly, that in terms of their consumption, that they differentiate themselves from others, they're not able to do that right now because of the shutdown of various activities. And that is obviously a kind of cost that they are paying. But of course, a difference is that that's money that they will be saving and they will have that later. Um, and so there is a risk, I think, that what we see is some households coming out of this with quite a bit of spending power because they've essentially been forced to save, um, whereas um, uh, other households, particularly those who have suffered big income shocks and don't have high income, so they can't just just weather the storm by cutting back on those more luxury items and they're, instead they're, they're choosing between necessities. Um, you know, their, their balance sheets deteriorate while the balance sheets of some of those higher up um, perhaps um, perhaps uh, get get stronger. Now, then there are caveats to that as well. You know, if we think more broadly about wealth and what's happening to house prices and the stock market, which could affect pensions, maybe, you know, the wealth of, of higher income households will actually be taking a pretty big whack as well. Uh, a, lot, a lot of that will depend on, on what happens to those asset prices. But I think there is a possible, um, when we think about balance sheets, a possible additional inequality that might be opening up through the crisis that will that will have effects afterwards. Could I just go back to what Rob was talking about initially about um, the likely impact of uh, lower earning workers being hit relatively hard in comparison to higher earning workers. I mean, amongst all the sort of relentless negative news, I think it is perhaps helpful to also think about what opportunities might come out of this crisis. And as Rob pointed out, one of the sectors which is likely to see very, very large um, reductions in the workforce is perhaps the hospitality sector. Now, we know that that sector is one of the lowest paying in the entire economy. So if government efforts to try and reallocate those workers into other sectors, in particular, I know that there's um, an increased amount of interest in addressing skills shortages in areas such as construction, that might actually succeed in moving workers out of relatively low paying jobs into more sort of middle paying jobs. If that was done successfully, that could be a positive thing for reducing earnings inequality. But it's important to point out that that's a very big if. So those sorts of retraining programs are quite hard to implement in practice. But like I said, I do think it's helpful to acknowledge that at least the opportunity is there for maybe some uh, interventions that could move uh, against uh, increases in inequality. I think there's an interesting uh, insight there. I think in a way what you're saying, Agnes, is that we uh, have been relying on an economic model uh, with relatively little training in some of these um, vocational um, uh, areas, uh, but lots and lots of jobs in um, relatively low-paid uh, industries, and that has proven to be not very robust uh, to the kind of shock that we've uh, we, we've we faced this time around, and that gives government at least the opportunity to change the way that it runs the economy. Not that that is by any means a straightforward thing to do. I mean, one other issue that strikes me as I hear Rob speaking, and it speaks to a point you were making earlier, Agnes, is that all of this really is hitting the 
incomes and earnings and prospects of those under pension age, isn't it? I mean, do we do we think that this might result in another uh, increase in the gap between those who are above pension age and therefore not not reliant on what's happening in the labour market and those below pension age who are potentially suffering rather more? That's an interesting question because on the one hand, as you say, pensioners are affected to a far less, a far smaller extent um, by labour market trends than, than people of working age. On the flip side to that, their incomes tend to be more reliant on private pensions. And so the large falls that we've seen in the stock market, we would expect those falls to hit the sort of annual incomes of pensioners, I would imagine, more than working age individuals. Um, And so to be perfectly honest, I'm not entirely sure at this stage how those two effects will play out. But there's definitely the potential there for us to see a widening in intergenerational inequality. I think one thing that we perhaps um, are more certain about is that within the working age group, uh, recessions tend to hit younger workers a lot harder than they do more experienced workers. And this is particularly due to the fact that career disruptions, so if you, I don't know, face a spell of unemployment and that spell occurs early on in your career, we know that that's, um, that's very damaging because that initial period of someone's career is really crucial for them in terms of securing uh, relatively high rates of pay growth and sort of it's the time when people tend to move into better jobs. So if that's disrupted because of this crisis, we would expect that within the working age group, younger people will see more negative effects than older workers. So one important distinction here when we're thinking about pensioners or or, um, somewhat older people, at least, is between those kind of on the cusp of uh, retirement, uh, perhaps, uh, the late working age years, um, and those who, you know, retired some time ago and have a completely uh, fixed income, say. So, you know, on the one hand, you can think of people who, they're, they're, they're long retired, they're not directly affected, therefore, by what's happening in the labour market. And they've also, um, you know, annuitized their pension pot, so they have a fixed stream of income as well. So they're also not affected by what's happening in the stock market. Um, that's a group who economically are going to tend to be pretty resilient to what's happening uh, right now on the whole. Um, then you can think, though, of people who, um, uh, let's say, are in the late working age years, actually some of that group I think could be among the most vulnerable. Um, it's, it's a relatively small group, but but it's I think an important group because uh, you've got people here who um, may still, in terms of their pension pots, the value of their pension pots, they, they may be um, sensitive to what's happening in the stock market, which is obviously pretty volatile right now. So that could be a, a shock they experience quite shortly before they're, they're, they're due to rely on that income. Um, and also, it is the case that the the right at the 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 older end of that working age spectrum, th- that is a group who are also relatively likely uh, to be um, furloughed as well. Um, and uh, we also have some reason to think that uh, if you do experience uh, job or career disruption that late in your career, it might be 
quite difficult to really recover from. Um, you know, certainly experience in the past where we had the big industrial disruption um, in the 1980s. Um, some of the people uh, who lost their jobs there, I think, really never never found work again. Um, it basically just put an end to their to their career. So that, I think there could be some people in that kind of age bracket who have a rather difficult situation now. Um, but it's, that, that doesn't detract from the case, you know, more broadly that most of the economic effects here are going to be felt by by younger generations rather than rather certainly rather than people who have who have long since retired. So we're facing a situation at the moment where we know that young people are being particularly badly hit. We've got a lot of uncertainty about what might happen to some of those in older working age. Probably on the whole, pensioners are being broadly uh, protected. Uh, we don't quite know clearly what's going to happen over the next few years. Uh, perhaps we could end. I'm going to end by asking each of you to speculate. I'm going to ask uh, you just to speculate on one thing that you think might be uh, a new and important driver of income levels uh, and inequality um, over the next few years, which will be different because of uh, this crisis. We won't hold you to it. Uh, of course, uh, we won't come back in a few years' time to see if you were right. But, um, but, but, but Agnes, perhaps you should go first. One, one thing you think might be different uh, as a result of this crisis over the next several years when we look at what's happening to either average incomes or distribution of incomes or the incomes of some particular group. Okay, so this might not meet your criteria of being different, but certainly something that's different in terms of recent historical experience, I think, will be basically the challenge caused by the threat of unemployment. And I say that's perhaps not, um, or rather that is perhaps different in terms of recent years, because over recent years, people just haven't seemed to have to worry about unemployment. We've seen record levels of employment sort of year on year. And so I think the problems faced by those who just simply cannot find work have not had to be uh, addressed by policymakers to the extent that they were, for example, in the 80s and in the early 90s. And it's important to point out that the benefit system over recent years has changed in a way that it provides much less insurance to the incomes of low-income households if those households are unable to find work. So if you're a workless household, than it did um, sort of in the mid-2000s. And so for that reason, if we see large increases in, un- in unemployment, which just aren't able to be unwound rapidly, I think that's perhaps the most um, worrying potential future cause of poor income trends over the coming years. Like I said, perhaps not too different if if you were around in the 1980s, but um, for me at least, <laughs> someone of the relatively young generation, I think that, that will be a relatively uh, new policy challenge that we haven't had to see addressed for several years. Well, so for those of us who were around in the 1980s, it feels a little bit like deja vu all, ro- all over again. But uh, but Rob, same same question to you. Well, I mean, I wonder whether one thing that we might see is is, is to do with the, the stability or volatility of people's um, earnings or incomes. I mean, this has been something that's got a quite a lot of attention already in the pre-crisis years, um, people 
uh, noticing the growth of of gig work and 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 alternative working arrangements more generally, and some concern that this you know about the implications this might have for uh, things like job security and 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 working conditions, as well as um, some appreciation of the possible benefits in terms of, of, of flexibility. Um, but I think you know if, if we're going to have an extended period where of, of lots of uncertainty, where it's really not clear which jobs are going to come back and when, um, then uh, I think there is some chance that we'll see quite a, an increase in people doing things that they consider to be possible stopgap roles um, uh, in, in the meantime, um, sort of perhaps perhaps a bit of an acceleration of the kind of casualization of of, of labor um i think that's one thing that could happen if we have a project you know as i say this protracted period of lots of uncertainty about which jobs in the longer term are really coming back and, and which aren't um so i think that would be one thing perhaps to keep an eye on of course i'm completely speculating and there, there are other there are other things that, that many people are speculating about too which i think are are, are certainly worth thinking through like the, the possibility that we get a lot more working from home on a persistent basis and the possibility as well that we see some automation happening right now because it's because social distancing makes it harder and more cumbersome to employ people basically in some contexts um, and, 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 and the possibilities for those to have to have long lasting effects, including on, on inequalities. Well, thank you both for uh, for speculating there about the possibilities. I think uh, I think Agnes is pretty pretty much certain to be right about the importance of unemployment going forward. Uh, Rob, uh, maybe the casualisation of labour will happen, but it may be that we get the government responding to that by uh, being much more interventionist in the labour market. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode of the IFS Zooms In. We've covered what we know has happened to incomes over the last decade. And that's been a pretty depressing picture as we've come into this crisis after the worst decade for income and earnings growth that we've seen uh, pretty much uh, in history. Uh, We've um, looked at what's happening at the moment. And we know uh, that younger people and people on lower incomes are being affected uh, much the most at the moment by this crisis. And we've looked forward to the future. We're worried about unemployment. We're worried about increases in inequality uh, in wealth as well as in uh, in income. And we are uh, very uncertain about what's going to happen in terms of the rate of growth of incomes over the next few years. So thank you very much to Agnes and to Rob for that. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.